Hello and welcome to whatever episode of uh, Pulp Today this is. I stopped counting a while ago. Uh, I have with me today a guest, the lovely and talented Megana Tova. Welcome, Megana. Um, you may remember her from her film roles, from her television roles, Spider-Man particularly, and The Magicians, right? Yeah. On Sci-Fi. Mm-hmm. How many seasons of The Magicians did you end up doing? All five. Yeah. Yeah. That's All great. I think I'm still like two seasons back. Yeah, it's, uh, that's, <laughs> like, uh, season three is a good season. season oh, yeah? Is a good season, I think. That's a bunch of uh, sign language with Marley Matlin. Oh, that's right. That's right. I remember hearing about that at the time. That's fun. amazing. Yeah. And, and also a writer and director and filmmaker, short film Hux, which is available online. People yes. Can find Hux? Okay. Yes, huxfilm.com, or you can go to my YouTube channel. Nice. So, so the other night on the Twitters, <laughs> Jamie Schler, Life's a Feast, at Life's a Feast, there it is, um, asked, and I don't even remember what the question was now. It's so good. A book that, what's a book that made you want to read? That made you fall in love with reading. There you go. That made you fall in love with reading. And I answered Fahrenheit 451 which I said, ironically, because it's a book about people burning books. And uh, Megana replied immediately that she also loved that book. And what was the other one you tagged in there? Uh, Brave New World. Brave New World, yeah. Yeah. Including having a pet named Hux. I, have, I had a first, I had some bunnies. And nice. um, one of the first ones was named Aldous. Nice. And then I later, these, these two overlapped and they became very close. The other one was Huxley, a, a female. Have you, you ever read Have you ever read Ape and Essence by the way? No. Oh my god. Essence. Read Ape and Essence. It's an Aldous Huxley book about Hollywood. Ooh, okay. Not. It's right. it's real. I haven't read it in years, but it was one of those things I always saw hanging around. Uh and I finally picked up a, a copy of it at my local used bookstore um Counterpoint on right. Franklin. Mhm who I'm sure I have, I sent their kid to college with the number of books I've bought there over the years and LPs and CDs and DVDs. And anyway, a terrific book. I I couldn't recommend it more. I was eventually going to get around to that on this podcast uh, someday, but we both, we both mentioned Fahrenheit 451. Uh, What was your very first encounter with it? How did you discover it? It was in, so I I went to this high school that was like a, magnet health sciences and engineering Mm. science school um we had like one all-inclusive art class for the whole 7th through 12th grade um and so we um but it was probably it was like somewhere in 7th 8th grade or so we were assigned um Fahrenheit 451 and Brave New World and they when I read those books I was like oh my god maybe my teachers do know what they're talking about. Like it made me go, oh my, like, I just, I, I loved it so much. Obviously I named my future, my pets after them and my short film. Um, and um, yeah, I, that's where it came from, my science magnet school. I remember having boycotted reading some of the previous books <laughs> that we were supposed to read. What and were then, the previous books? 
I can't remember, but I just remember, and it's so wrong, because, like, they were probably great books, but I remember feeling like, ugh, they're going to be boring, and I was, I was reading a lot of sci-fi, like, Piers Anthony and stuff at the time. It's okay. We didn't know about Piers until much later, and <laughs> yeah. some of that stuff is very read readable. The fantasy, the magic of Xanth, and all those, those are, those are adorable books, and I, I definitely enjoyed them at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yes, it was good at the age and I, um, I enjoyed them very much. And so anyway, then reading, you know, the Brave New World and Fahrenheit was like, ah, oh, that's, yeah. that's sci-fi. That's like, I, I think I got Brave New World in 1984 in AP English in whatever that was junior high. But when I was way too young to understand it, I think my next door neighbor had seen the Truffaut movie which may have even been new. I think I'm that old. Uh, it, or maybe they had seen it at a revival. Let's hope they saw it at a revival because that would be sad. Uh, but, and I think the Truffaut movie is highly underrated, by the way. I think it's actually a pretty great adapt adaptation of the book. Mm -hmm. But um, I was so young, I didn't really grasp the ideas of science fiction and what was and was not science fiction. And my neighbor who was not a writer or a storyteller or any kind of teacher was just sort of repeating the details of the society and the thing and didn't make it clear to me this was some fiction she had encountered. So like at the age of six or seven, I was like, so this is somewhere in the world, there's a society where firemen burn books and whatever. And, uh, I can't remember actually where I first got the book, but I think because of hearing that, I was anxious to read it and understand it. And by the time I read it, I was a science fiction fan and reader and all that. Um, it's hard for me to track like what I read when, you know? Yeah. Like, but I know Fahrenheit 50, 451 was an early uh, grab on my subconscious. And then I, I did see the movie and the uh, there's a lifelong thing that dots I didn't connect till years and years and years later. But I have a I have a habit of memorizing things I truly love, like memorizing writing I truly love. Wonderful. And years later, I went, "Am I afraid of the firemen? Do I think the firemen are going to come and take Edgar Allan Poe from me? And that's why I can do you know dream within a dream from memory because." I don't want it to be ever taken out. You literally have to remove it from my brain with a scalpel. And all the night tide, I lay down by the side of my dearest, my darling, my life and my bride, Annabelle Lee, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that one, just little sections um, yeah. are stuck in my brain. <laughs> I don't have as much of it as I used to. Um, I used to be able to do the final monologue from Maltese Falcon by heart. Oh. Uh, you killed Miles and then you killed Thursby. Miles didn't have very many brains, but he had too many years experience to go out like that, uh, following a suspect of a blind alley with his gun on his hip and his overcoat buttoned. But he would have followed you, Angel. He would have taken one look at you and he would have licked his lips and he would have gone, grinning from ear to ear. And you could have stood as close as you wanted to him there in the dark and shot him with the gun that Thursby gave. You know, it's like that's not, it. that's not exactly it, but like at a certain point I went, I, I, I can't ever lose that. I'd better. Anyway, yeah. all of that to say, uh, we're going to read a pit. This is my paperback of Fahrenheit 451 that I have probably had since high school. Um, I think I, I had an earlier or a later edition of this book. 
This is the fifth printing from March of 1965 from Valentine. And uh, I probably destroyed the first paperback I had of it by, by reading it uh, a bunch of times. Uh, one last interesting thing to me about the movie, I've always wondered if him naming the main character Guy Montag, which is, of course, one of the great bland dystopian character names of all time, Guy, which is literally the most, you know, incognito and, name in the world, and then Montag, which is German for Monday. Uh, it's very possible that Truffaut went after Marcello Mastriani and Michael Caine and Sean Connery and they all turned him down, but I think it's funny that he ended up casting a German leading man to play Guy Montag. Like, I think at some, on some unconscious level, he went, well, Guy Montag's clearly a German guy. <laughs> right? But, um, yeah, I had been planning to do this, and I had read a couple of uh, sections for it, trying to decide what I wanted to read for the podcast. And I was going to do the beginning, which is, of course, it was a pleasure to burn, which is very iconic. But when... Uh, you said you loved it. I was like, oh my God, I'll read the Montag and Clarice scene. Yeah, it's so with... beautiful. Yeah. So let's give this a try. So the story is, in a future society, uh, firemen burn books because books have dangerous ideas and they make people very, very unhappy. Um, I moved my camera so that the maximum amount of my books could be in the background while I do this. Um, so book owners are criminals, firemen burn books. On his way home from work, um, Guy Montag uh, meets, a, meets a young woman. And here we go, Ray Bradbury, we haven't said his name enough today, Fahrenheit 451. The autumn leaves blew over the moonlit pavement in such a way as to make the girl who was moving there seem fixed to a sliding walk, letting the motion of the wind and the leaves carry her forward. Her head was half bent to watch her shoes stir the circling leaves. Her face was slender and milk white, and in it was a kind of gentle hunger that touched over everything with tireless curiosity. It was a look almost of pale surprise. The dark eyes were so fixed to the world that no move escaped them. Her dress was white, and it whispered. He almost thought he heard the motion of her hands as she walked, and the infinitely small sound now, the white stir of her face turning, when she discovered she was a movement, a moment away from a man who stood in the middle of the pavement waiting. The trees overhead made a great sound of letting down their dry rain. The girl stopped and looked as if she might pull back in surprise, but instead stood regarding Montag with eyes so dark and shining and alive that he felt he had said something quite wonderful. But he knew his mouth had only moved to say, hello. And then when she seemed hypnotized by the salamander on his arm and the phoenix disc on his chest, he spoke again. Of course, he said. You're our new neighbor, aren't you? And you must be, she raised her eyes from his professional symbols. The fireman, her voice trailed off. How oddly you say that. I'd, I'd have known it with my eyes shut, she said slowly. What, the smell of kerosene? My wife always complains, he laughed. You never wash it off completely. No, you don't, she said in awe. He felt she was walking in a circle about him, turning him end for end, shaking him quietly and emptying his pockets without once moving herself. Kerosene, he said, because the silence had lengthened, is nothing but perfume to me. Does it seem like that, 
Really? Of course, why not? She gave herself time to think of it. I don't know. She turned to face the sidewalk going toward their homes. Do you mind if I walk back with you? I'm Clarice McClellan. Clarice, Guy Montag, come along. What are you doing out so late, wandering around? How old are you? They walked in the warm, cool, blowing night on the silvered pavement, and there was the faintest breath of fresh apricots and strawberries in the air. And he looked around and realized this was quite impossible so late in the air. There was only the girl walking with him now, her face bright as snow in the moonlight, and he knew she was working his questions around, seeking the best answers she could possibly give. Well, she said, I'm 17 and I'm crazy. My uncle says the two always go together. When people ask your age, he said, always say 17 and insane. Isn't this a nice time of night to walk? I like to smell things and look at things and sometimes stay up all night walking and watch the sunrise. They walked on again in silence and finally she said thoughtfully, you know, I'm not afraid of you at all. He was surprised. Why should you be? So many people are. Afraid of firemen, I mean. But you're just a man, after all. He saw himself in her eyes, suspended in two shining drops of bright water, himself dark and tiny, in fine detail, the lines about his mouth, everything there, as if her eyes were two miraculous bits of violet amber that might capture and hold him intact. Her face, turned to him now, was fragile milk crystal with a soft and constant light in it, it was not the hysterical light of electricity, but what? But the strangely comfortable and rare and gently flattering light of a candle. One time, as a child in a power failure, his mother had found and lit a last candle and there had been a brief hour of rediscovery of such illumination that space lost its vast dimensions and drew comfortably around them. And they, mother and son, alone transformed, hoping that the power might not come on again too soon. And then Clarice McClellan said, do you mind if I ask, how long have you worked at being a fireman? Since I was 20, 10 years ago. Do you ever read any of the books you burn? He laughed, that's against the law. Oh, of course. It's fine work, Monday burn Malay, Wednesday Whitman, Friday Faulkner, burn them to ashes and then burn the ashes. That's our official slogan. They walked still further and the girl said, is it true that long ago, firemen put fires out instead of going to start them? No. Houses have always been fireproof. Take my word for it. Strange. I heard once that a long time ago, houses used to burn by accident, and they needed firemen to stop the flames. He laughed. <laughs> she glanced quickly over. Why are you laughing? I don't know. He started to laugh again and stopped. Why? You laugh when I haven't been funny, and you answer right off. You never stop to think what I've asked you. He stopped walking. You are an odd one, he said, looking at her. Haven't you any respect? I don't mean to be insulting. It's just I love to watch people too much, I guess. Well, doesn't this mean anything to you? He tapped the numerals 451 stitched on his char-colored sleeve. Yes, she whispered. She increased her pace. Have you ever watched the jet cars racing on the boulevards down that way? You're changing the subject. 
I sometimes think drivers don't know what grass is or flowers because they never see them slowly, she said. If you showed a driver a green blur, oh yes, he'd say, that's grass. A pink blur, that's a rose garden. White blurs are houses, brown blurs are cows. My uncle drove slowly on a highway once. He drove 40 miles an hour and they jailed him for two days. Isn't that funny and sad too? You think too many things, said Montag uneasily. I rarely watch the parlor walls or go to races or fun parks. So I have lots of time for crazy thoughts, I guess. Have you seen the 200 foot long billboards in the country beyond town? Did you know that once billboards were only 20 feet long? But cars started rushing by so quickly they had to stretch the advertising out so it would last? I didn't know that, Montag laughed abruptly. But I know something else you don't. There's dew on the grass in the morning. He suddenly couldn't remember if he had known this or not, and it made him quite irritable. And if you look, she nodded at the sky. There's a man in the moon. He hadn't looked for a long time. They walked the rest of the way in silence, hers thoughtful. His a kind of clenching and uncomfortable silence in which he shot her accusing glances. When they reached her house, all its lights were blazing. What's going on? Montag had rarely seen that many house lights. Oh, just my mother and father and uncle sitting around talking. It's like being a pedestrian, only rarer. My uncle was arrested another time, did I tell you, for being a pedestrian? Oh, we're most peculiar. But what do you talk about? <laughs> she laughed at this. Good night. She started up her walk. Then she seemed to remember something and came back to look at him with wonder and curiosity. Are you happy? She said. Am I what? He cried. But she was gone running in the moonlight, her front door shut gently. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Oh, great God. Scene. And Bradbury, Sorry. such a, you know, we talked about this, but um, Bradbury was a huge influence on me, this book aside. I'd say that, honestly, um, of everything he wrote, this probably isn't in my top five favorite things that he wrote. Uh, I, the Martian Chronicles. That's, the, that's what I was going to say. That's my top. That was more of a life changer. There's just the, the, as someone who had enjoyed hard science fiction, I got such a kick out of the fact that he just talked about rockets and Mars and he didn't know what temperature it is on Mars. And he didn't, he didn't know what kind of rocket you used. And yet, he was a better writer than any of the guys that knew how rockets worked or what Mars was really like or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like he, he approached everything. He like in a Norman Rockwell, like love of America way. Like he just loved everything he wrote about. I feel like, you know, yeah. and, and you can, you can feel it. It's, yeah. know, it's so great. No, it's very, it's, it's very human and very poetic. I mean, I hadn't read that passage uh, in a long time when I picked it up the other day and the poetry of it, uh, the descriptions of her and the descriptions of what it's like to meet someone fascinating yeah. out of nowhere and how it can shake you to your foundations, um, yeah. you know, is really, is really quite something. And then, you know, the illustrated man, uh, is another favorite of mine. R is for rocket is another favorite of mine. Um, you know, it's just, uh, 
it's it's amazing stuff. And you ended up having a professional <laughs> relationship with yeah. Jerry later in life and a friendship. Yeah. Oh gosh. So so okay. So I had gone to Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival this year with these two wonderful people, John Blankenship and Alan Neil Hubs. They are theater people. Mm-hmm. And so after I graduated, they I don't know exactly how they ended up working with Ray, but they ended up doing all of, like basically all of his shows. And they his shows were all over town, or they'd be in different theaters, a lot in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they brought me into the fold and I ended up doing shows with Ray Bradbury for like a decade. Wow. Um, and one of the best, you would love this. And if I find it, I will one day send it to you. Um, but so he had this, um, script called Leviathan 99 which was his space version of Moby Dick mm. um, which he had, he wrote the screenplay yes, for the yeah. John Huston version with Gregory Peck yeah so I so that was so and um, Queeque was in his version was this alien named Quell that I I so that was the first thing I did was the stage reading that we did like a play and I was an alien. Um, and, <laughs> um, and then we actually did Fahrenheit 451, which I think ended up being one of like, a, I think the longest 99 seat theater run at the time. Um, mm-hmm. It went on forever. And I came in about halfway through um, and Alan was directing and he was like, Hey, can you memorize this in four days? Cause we <laughs> lost our Mildred. So I came in and I, I did oh, it. So you played the wife. And yes, I did. And by the way, this is one of the hats. Nice. From the, um, that they had on stage as the. As the fireman. Yeah, it was so good. Anyway, so yeah. And um, when I first met him, I, feel, I think you asked like how it was when I first met him because <laughs> I haven't gotten, I don't get giddy much meeting people. And, um, but here, when I'm, so he would come to as many of the shows as he could. And then he would take the entire theater out for like Indian food after. He was just a cool guy. And he, so I met him after one of the shows and I went up to him and he's like in his eighties and he kissed my hand and I literally went weak kneed. Like I got giggly and dumb and it was (laughs) so ridiculous. But then we worked together for so long and, um, Oh, I feel like you would really appreciate this. So um, early on, after I'd met him, I was like, okay, well, I have to send him some of my writing to see what he thinks. And um, I sent him this poem, and it was this poem about loving your art or loving someone. Like, can you do both or should you? And he called me. He was so upset. He was like, before I met my wife, life was meaningless. He was so upset. He's like, you need both. And then he sent me his Zen in the art of writing. And mm-hmm. on the inside, he wrote Magena, <laughs> exclamation points. You must have both something <laughs> to love, someone to love. Otherwise life is meaningless. He's not wrong. It's, it, was, it was just, he, yeah. Anyway. So, oh, and we hot tub together once. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask about that. You said something like that before we started recording. Were there were others in the hot tub? Yes, it okay. wasn't just the two of us. Yes. He was very wholesome. I'm um, sure. Two of you, Arthur C. Clarke. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. It was like a, after one of the ends of one of our shows, and nice. like it was. I mean, that group of actors. They still try to get together here and there. Like they just were all theater people who 
sure. very lucky to have been in his orbit. And so we sort of stay together. And, I can oh, totally and weird, weird, just one other weird thing sure. is that, so then on ma The Magicians, I play a librarian, like a magic librarian, right? And so in, oh no, can I spoil it for you? Yes, correct. It's oh my God, okay. So, <laughs> so I, I'm the, like the protector of knowledge and right. this library and these bad people are going to get the books of all the people who ever lived, all the people who never lived, all the people who are going to live and it tells all their stories. So they, they'll be able to like, before people do things, they'll be able to take advantage and it's terrible. So I burned the books. I burned the library. And when I read that in our table <laughs> read, I was like, Oh my God. I was like, but I was friends with Ray Bradbury. <laughs> right. I can't do it anyway. So, but even Ray, you know, Ray later said it, people focus too much on the book burning when really it was about television and radio, and you know, all it was more about the obsession with the things that aren't books, right? You know, than yeah. the uh, than than the the book burning, the book burning itself. I remember my first job was uh, I worked in a bookstore, uh, just like Counterpoint Records, called uh, the Book Swap in Milltown, New Jersey. I would say probably a quarter of the books in my possession have a stamp on the inside that says, after you've read it, swap it for credit at the book swap, Milltown, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and I remember we had like an overstock of Harlequin romances and we had to toss them. And I was like, you can't throw out books. She's like, dude, these are Harlequin romances. <laughs> like, you know, so this, isn't, this isn't Flaubert we're, we're tossing in the garbage yeah. here. But it was very painful for me to to destroy anything in any way that was uh, printed material. Because I grew, you know, as you, as you know, I grew up with a novelist. Uh, I don't know if Dad ever had any encounters with Ray. I think they met each other in passing. Oh, Ray Bradbury once said that one of my dad's opening lines to a novel was the greatest <laughs> opening line in Western literature, which was really he. I think his tongue was firmly in his cheek. But dad wrote a sexy soap opera novel in the 80s, 70s, called uh, The Girls in Television. Mm -hmm. And the first line was, I hate to hump and run. <laughs> that's pretty great. And apparently Ray Bradbury, maybe it was at a Mystery Writers of America, said that's the greatest opening line in the history of literature. Yeah, a good sense of humor. <laughs> don't, let, don't let anybody tell you different. And I saw it, the last time I saw Ray alive, I mean, we didn't know each other, but I, you know, traveled in a lot of the same universe. And I was sitting at a, I think this is long enough ago that my wife and I still were, were doing a booth at San Diego Comic-Con. And he was being pushed through the crowd on a wheelchair. And his escort was being more polite than I would have been. And he, and we had a particularly jammed car uh, aisle. Mm -hmm. And I saw him and yelled, everybody make way for Ray Bradbury. <laughs> and everybody turned and looked at him and it opened a huge thing that, and he turned and went, and was, oh, we I saluted see. each other. And it was a, it was, it was actually a pretty big moment for me. That's pretty um, awesome. Yeah. It's, you know, me, people always say never meet your heroes. I have yet to be truly disappointed by any of my heroes. I tend to meet them and they're fantastic. And, you know, in some cases I've even been lucky enough to become friends with people who were, heroes of mine or people I was fans of for years and years. I mean, I'm currently writing Elvira's comic books and I talk to Cassandra on the phone every once in a while and I'm just still like, 
guess I'm going to call Cassandra Peterson now. Like, you know, it's just kind of a weird, it's a weird space to occupy. But anyway, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so excited. I am no actor and I'm excited I got to play a scene with you because you're- Yeah, that was really fun. And, uh, and it really, it, I think it, it's, it's a nice, I've never done anything like that before with this and I thought it was a perfect opportunity to dramatize it just a little bit more than usual. Yeah. Oh, but I wore a suit jacket for you, by the way, because <laughs> I was like, he always wears, he always gets so dressed up, but I, I just wore a t-shirt, but it is a, it is a you, smoky bear. So it kind of tight. nice. It's a good, it's a good intellectual montage thing with, you know, <laughs> burning books. Totally. Well, thank you, Megana. Thanks so this much. Really great. And we'll do it. And maybe next time we'll do uh, R is for rocket or something. Oh, that'd be good. Or Martian Chronicles. Or Mar yeah, no, we could both pick a short in Martian Chronicles and read it because there's so much great stuff in there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.